Arlington Baptist Podcast. Glad that you're joining me today. I am in a different setting this afternoon. I'm usually at my office at the church, but here in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, we've been going through uh, an annual ice storm. We usually get one of these about once every winter, and just the last couple days, we've had some some bad weather with uh, freezing rain and sleet and ice and so on, so everything's been closed down, so I'm in my home office today, and so you might hear a little bit of background noise. My wife's doing some clothes and all that stuff, so if it sounds a little different, it's because we are in a different setting. Well, let's get right into our study of the great book of Revelation. We've been studying this book for a while now. We took a break, of course, over the Christmas uh, holidays and then got back into it. We're in chapter 7, if you have a Bible there and you want to open your Bible or get on your phone and your Bible there, whatever you use, and we are going to continue our study in chapter 7. Now, again, we're going verse by verse and chapter by chapter, try to give you uh, enough to uh, really sink your teeth into. We want to give you enough information that, uh, you know, you can get something out of the flow of this book. Uh, we're not trying to get bogged down and study each verse uh, really thoroughly. It would take a long, long time. It warrants that at another setting, but not on a podcast. So I'm trying to give you a little bit more than just a casual reading of the text as well. So we came uh, as far as verse 8 last week in chapter 7, and we had finished the sixth seal at the end of chapter 6, and I told you that the seventh seal, remember there's these three sets of seven judgments Okay, you have the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven vial judgments. Uh, and interlaced in between them, they don't just come come on right after another in the text. There's some, there's some breaks in the text, and that's what we saw in, in chapter 7, and we've been seeing. And we're going to finish this chapter, Lord willing, today. But chapter 7 started with God marking some special believers uh, in their foreheads, Okay. It says, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads, verse 3. And then we finished last week by looking at this, <coughs> excuse me, this group of 144,000 Jewish men. We're going to see more of them later. I kind of jumped ahead and gave you a little bit more uh, of a description of them than the text here in chapter 7 tells us, but I was thinking ahead. We'll get to that in chapter 14, but uh, we did say that there's no warrant at all for any group claiming to be this 144,000. Uh, I told you about the Jehovah's Witnesses have come up with that false teaching uh, for years now and claiming only 144,000 Jehovah's Witnesses will be in the uh, kingdom to come. That's no, nowhere in the text. That's a, a, a total uh, misunderstanding and a, and a radical uh, uh, eisegesis. Exegesis is taking... From the text, eisegesis is adding into the text, and that's what uh, Jehovah's Witnesses and other groups like this who teach false doctrine do. But these are simply just 12,000 special Jewish men from each of the 12 tribes who are going to have a very special ministry, and we're going to begin to talk about that as we look at the rest of chapter 7, beginning in verse 9. So let me read the text, and I'll go back and we'll discuss it verse by verse has been our a pattern, okay? So, beginning in verse 9 of chapter 7, After this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues, 
stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands, and cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. And all the angels stood around about the throne and about the elders and the four beasts, and fell before the throne on their faces and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be unto our God forever and ever. Amen. Well, let's talk about this multitude uh, that is described here in verse 9. And uh, it says, And after this I beheld and lo, a great multitude which no man could number. Now, who are these, uh, these, who is this multitude? Well, there's been various ideas uh, thrown around about who they are. I think the best interpretation, keeping it into the text and the chronology and all the interpretation of the book of Revelation, has to be that these are uh, those that are saved during the tribulation period. In fact, I know that because we're going to see later in the text, it tells you that. Uh, John will ask uh, who they are, and he'll be given the answer. Uh, and they are they that were saved out of the Great Tribulation, this, this seven-year period. Uh, and now that brings us to discuss these 144,000. Why were they even brought up at the beginning of chapter 7? Well, uh, because they are going to have a great part in the uh, conversion, the salvation of this great multitude that's discussed here. Uh, now, I'm going to have to jump ahead just to give you a little bit of uh, cohesiveness uh, so that I, I, I can kind of explain how I think the book of Revelation teaches this. We won't be introduced to uh, two special witnesses. I call them the two special witnesses in chapter 11. I'll, I'll try to avoid going too much into detail, but let me just put it this way. Um, God has never left himself without witness on the earth, right? There's always been, until the last person that's ever saved at the end of the millennial reign of Christ during that thousand years, we'll get into that later, uh, until the last person that's ever saved is converted, God has always had a witness on the earth, someone who's declaring, someone who's preaching, someone who's showing and testifying of his great salvation. Now, here's a dilemma that we have to solve. Uh, if the rapture happens before the tribulation period, and I'm of the opinion it does, I hold a pre-tribulational, pre-millennial view of end-time events, well, we come uh, to a big dilemma. Uh, if all the Christians <coughs> excuse me, are caught up at the rapture, and I believe they will be, well, you're going to have all these unsaved people going into the seven-year tribulation period, okay, all those who were uh, unconverted at that time, well, who's going to witness to them? Who will be God's spokesman? Because if you have all Christians gone in the rapture, uh, well, then God would be without witness, wouldn't he? Well, no, he's never without witness. And that's where these two special witnesses that are brought down from heaven in chapter 11 of the book of Revelation, and I'm going to hold off and hold you in suspense, kind of a cliffhanger here, uh, to tell you that these two witnesses will be the uh, witnesses in the beginning of that seven years of tribulation. But the fruit of their labor, uh, those who are converted under their preaching, uh, will be these 144,000. Uh, I believe that's the best way to connect the dots to find out how they got to where they are. It says 
They were sealed in their foreheads, well, they're already sealed because they are saved. They wouldn't be sealed before they were saved. They're sealed after they're saved. And it says they were sealed as the servants of our God in their foreheads. Well, how did they come to, to faith in Jesus Christ? Well, I think the two witnesses in Jerusalem will be witnessing, and they, being Jews, will be there in Israel, uh, like most Jews. Uh, many Jews even today have made Aliyah, they call it Aliyah, as return to their promised land, their holy land, uh, from wherever they were dispersed in the earth. Uh, and they will uh, hear the preaching of these two special witnesses and be converted. Now, after the midpoint of the tribulation period, the three and a half, first three and a half year period, we know those two witnesses are killed uh, in Jerusalem. They will be resurrected and ascended up into heaven. And then for the remainder of the seven years, uh, the 144,000 will be the main witnesses. Okay, and they'll probably already be witnessing prior to that, but at least for sure, once the two witnesses are gone, they will have the main responsibility. Now, Again, we're not going to try to you know, dot every I and cross every T. I can't say that there won't be other Christians witnessing. There probably will. I'm just going to stay with what we do have in the text. Now, back to verse 9 of chapter 7. How do we see this great multitude? Notice it's from every nation, kindred, people, tongue. Um, how, how did they all get saved? Well, it, it had to be because some of them could have been saved by the two witnesses prior uh, to their to the end of their ministries, that's true. I'm not going to say for sure they weren't, but I think it's probably better since it says they're saved from all over the earth that these 144,000 will probably be those who are witnessing all over the earth too. I don't believe that they'll just stay in Jerusalem only. I think they'll leave Israel. I think they'll travel uh, around the world. We know travel today is is very uh, easy uh, and uh frequent and people do it all the time so there's no reason to believe they can't travel other places well this multitude that's before the throne have already died we're going to get to that in a minute the text kind of first introduces them and goes back and explains how they died but we know they're before the throne uh, because it says they're standing before the throne clothed with white robes and palms in their hands uh, that's interesting and we see a lot in the bible about white robes white is a picture of righteousness, of purity. It means they've been clothed in righteousness. They've, made, they've been made sinless, perfect through the blood of Jesus Christ. Uh, and palms in their hands, that's interesting. Uh, you know, we think of palms. There's, uh, you know, Catholic and Protestant groups observe Palm Sunday. I, I don't really see uh, the necessity of carrying a tradition on like that necessarily, but we do see palms uh, when Jesus came into Jerusalem riding on the donkey prior to his death on the cross and his rejection by uh, the majority of the nation of Israel. We know they laid palms and clothes out uh, as, a, as kind of a road, a, a smooth path for him to come in as a king into Jerusalem. And so, but palms really kind of speak of, of peace, of worship. Uh, they speak of, of adoration. Uh, and so here's these believers, a multitude. You could even number them, there's so many. All before the throne and before the Lamb. By the way, notice these phrases. Uh, we can't miss them. They're very theological, Christological. Notice it says, and they stood before the throne and before the Lamb. There seems to be this dual aspect. They're worshiping uh, God, I believe the Father, and maybe you could include, of course, the Spirit. 
but also the lamb is brought up in a lot of these same phrases. It's an equality here. Christ, the lamb of God, is equal with God the Father and God the Spirit. Well, now we even see exactly what they sing and what they cry out with a loud voice. Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne and unto the lamb. See that? I told you that connection. You got They're, they're crying to, the, to God, which sitteth on the throne and unto the lamb. Remember, when it says God sitting upon the throne, they can't really see God sitting upon the throne. So I think that's why the Lamb, Christ, is brought into this. God the Father is invisible, as is, is the Spirit of God, the third person of the triune Godhead. And so we see God being worshipped and the Lamb, one and the same. And then now we have this great crescendo, this great uh, climactic uh, worship event where all the angels are around about the throne. There's not even a number of them. They're, they're numberless as well. I mean, so many. And remember the elders, the 24 elders from the earlier chapter? There they are. And the four beasts, we saw them before. They're here again. And they all fall before the throne on their faces and worshiped God, verse 11 says. Oh, friends, worship is the great jewel of the church, the great need of every Christian. Remember when Jesus said to the woman at the well, the Father seeketh such to worship him in spirit and in truth. God calls worshipers to himself. Uh, the greatest act of interaction with God that we can have is worship. Uh, worship means to attribute value. It comes from the same word of where we get the word worth. Value, something important. <coughs> when something's important enough, you... You put value on it. You put esteem into it. And that's what we do when we worship God. Well, it goes on to say, uh, amen. Now, this word amen is found a lot in the book of Revelation. Uh, we've already, I think, discussed it. It's simply a, a very simple ending word that means so be it or let it be so. Uh, it's just a word of, of uh, agreement is a good way to put it. So once they have worship and fell on and say, they say amen. That's not all they say. Sometimes we think of amen as the end of a prayer, and often it is the end of a prayer, but it doesn't have to be. You can say it anytime. You know, when I'm preaching, people sometimes say amen out in the congregation. I, I like to hear other men preach, and I like to say amen. It's, I'm agreeing. So be it, brother. I agree with you. And that's what they're saying, saying amen. And then, and then they go into this long descriptive list uh, in this in this worshipful song, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might. Look at all those things. Be unto our God forever and ever. Amen. He's worthy. He's worthy of eternal worship. He's the only eternal being. All the universe will one day worship him. Remember that great passage? I don't often look back at cross-references in this study because of time, but sometimes they're just so... So real to me, I have to look at it. Remember what God said about Christ? How that every knee shall bow. Let me read it in Philippians 2, verse 9. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, Christ, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What a great statement. Well, that tells me that even the atheists, the skeptics, the unbelievers, those who hate Christ, uh, those who hate Christianity, uh, they are mistaken. 
they're foolish because one day they're going to be made to bow. I'd rather bow willingly now to his majesty, his greatness, come to him in his grace and his acceptance, his love, his patience, his blessing, his provision. Come to him now because if you don't come to him now, you're going to come to him later and you're going to have to fall at his feet and confess that he is Lord. He's master of the universe. He's the king of kings and Lord of lords as we'll see him named in this book. Well, let's move on. Now, we're not done with this uh, group yet. We just kind of introduced them and see them worshiping. Now, we're going to see a little bit more about them in this question that will be asked. So, let me read now uh, chapter 7, verses 13 through 17. And one of the elders answered, saying unto me, What are these which are arrayed in white robes? And whence or from where came they? And I said unto him, Sir, thou knowest? And he said to me, These are they which came out of great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore are they before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, neither shall the sunlight on them, nor any heat. For the Lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them and shall lead them unto living waters of uh, fountains of waters. God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. Now, this uh, dialogue between John and this elder are interesting. Uh, this elder, one of the 24 elders, uh, says to, to John, What or who, could be either way, what or who are these which are arrayed in white robes? And where did they come from? Whence, the old King James, where? Where did they come from? And I like John's answer. It's, it, it's kind of like um, he may be so startled by what he's just seen, he doesn't know how to answer. His answer is, sir, <laughs> thou knowest. That's kind of like saying, I don't know. You know. And he said to me, he does know. This, this elder does know who these, this multitude is. These are they which came out of great tribulation. See, I'm a firm believer that these are those that are saved during that particular a period of history. Now, there's going to be a multitude of saved people all, all through history. Boy, when we think about the whole family of God, let me just digress and say, I think the Bible teaches three special groups of people. We need to remember these three groups. Sometimes they're confused and we have some wrong doctrine when they are confused. I think, first of all, you need to remember there's a family of God. The family of God consists of all people who have ever been saved or ever will be saved. From the time Adam and Eve were saved in the garden, until the last person, like I mentioned earlier, that will be saved at the end of the millennial kingdom. Those make up the family of God. And that's why it's called a new birth, a regeneration. You're made alive in Christ. You're adopted into his family. All that terminology goes along with a family, right? So you got the family of God. And that's all the saved of all time. But then Jesus spoke of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. They're interchangeable in the Gospels. I think the kingdom of God refers to all the saved on earth at any one time. Jesus was asked in Luke 17 uh, by the Pharisees, when shall the kingdom come? And he said, uh, and I'm going to paraphrase this for sake of time, not even to turn back to the passage to get it exactly right. But he said, hey, the kingdom of God comes not with observation. You won't see it uh, right now. He said, the kingdom of God is within you. Every believer has made Jesus Lord. Uh, he is their king. He's my king as a believer. If you're saved, Jesus is your king. So the kingdom of God really just refers to all the saved 
on earth at any one time. It's the earthly kingdom. The kingdom of heaven just means we are citizens of heaven. We're going there. But right now on earth, we make up his kingdom to do his work. He's our king in our hearts. Now, there's a third group, and that's the church. And I do not believe that the church is the same as those first two groups. Now, there are people who teach that, and they're welcome to teach whatever they feel they should and what they've come up with. But I think the Bible teaches the church is the called-out assembly. It's, it's a local body of Christ. I believe in the local church. It's kind of That's kind of a double emphasis, a redundancy, because the word church means a called-out assembly. And since you can't assemble and never have been able to and never will assemble all believers on earth at any one time, then the church is, would, would be completely meaningless to use the word. It means the saved who gather in one place. They've been scripturally baptized. They've been organized uh, by proper leadership, pastoral leadership, elders, and so on. And so that's the three groups. Now, having said all that, we're back to our passage where uh, John uh, tells this elder, hey, you know who they are. And he says, these are they which came out of great tribulation. Uh, remember, they're saved during that time, this multitude. And notice they've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. This kind of seems like a contradiction. Blood is not white, right? I mean, blood is red. But blood, when it speaks of the blood of Christ, is a purifying agent. This is a great point. The rest of the Bible backs this up. Now, you and I are not made white or washed from our sins or having our sins washed away by the baptismal waters. That's incorrect. Groups that teach you have to be baptized to be saved are contradicting salvation by grace through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast, the text says. We, we can't add to the work of Christ by anything we do, including baptism. So baptismal water does not wash you clean. What makes you clean is the blood of Christ because his blood is applied to you. You're, it's a covering. That's what the word atonement means. In the Old Testament, atonement's taught. They would sacrifice these animals, and in a temporary symbolic way, the blood of the animals atoned for or covered the sins of Israel and the individual Jewish person that was bringing that sacrifice. And so that is a picture of Christ. His blood was shed to atone or cover our sins. And so we're made white. might seem a contradiction, but it's perfectly biblical that we're made pure and white through his red blood, through his perfect blood, his sinless blood. See, he's the only one that, have ever, that ever has, that ever did have sinless blood running through his veins. You and I are sinners, and blood is the life of the flesh, and it's the sinful life of our flesh. Our blood is tainted because of sin, but his was not. He's without sin. He was the pure one, the holy one, the son of God. And so that's describing the salvation of these uh, people, this multitude. And then it goes on uh, to talk about, therefore are they before the throne of God. Now, stop right there. There's a comma after that statement in verse 15. It's an important one because that is a present tense statement. They are, therefore are they before the throne of God, okay? Uh, but then from here on, from the rest of verse 15, 16, and 17, we're going to go into a future tense He's going to look to the future. He's going to go past what John had just saw. He said, yeah, you see him right now before the throne, but I want to tell you what they will do in the future. And we're going to see a lot of future tense verbs, shall and so on primarily. 
And this is going to describe, I think, uh, the millennial kingdom uh, and, and eternity, you could say. Because we're going to see some statements made in verse 15, 16, and 17 that really mirror or exactly like statements made in the end of the book of Revelation that talk about the eternal state when a new heavens and new earth are made. Notice what he says about them. Verse 15, and serve him day and night in his temple. Well, even saying that, uh, it's a it's a futuristic statement. Uh, it has with it the idea they're, they're continuing to serve him. You see him now, but they're going to continue to be there forever. And he that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them. Look at that, shall dwell among them. Now that takes us into a different dimension we're going to see. See, they already are there before the throne, having died and, and their, their spirits are up in heaven. Uh, this gets into the rather confusing uh, idea of exactly when are their bodies reunited with their spirits. You know, I'm going to leave that to, to God. We can't sort out every detail. Possibly uh, when Jesus returns, those who were, who were killed during the tribulation will receive their glorified bodies. I believe the saved right now at the rapture, we receive glorified bodies. So whenever they do, we'll leave that to God's timing. It's not real clear in the text, but this statement that they'll serve him and he that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them. Now, who is that? We don't believe the Father or the Spirit can be in mind there. It's Christ. Christ shall dwell among them. He'll be among his people. Uh, I shall dwell among them and I shall be their God. They shall be my people. That's back to chapter 21. I'm not going to take time to jump ahead and read all that, but I'm going to just point out some of these statements in these last few verses here are definitely related to chapter 21 and eternity. Because after chapter 20, you have a new heavens and new earth that are created. The whole, whole uh, realm of, of existence, this, this realm of time and space and matter like we live in now, even the millennial kingdom will be over. A new heavens, a new earth. Then eternity starts and no time will ever be kept. That's why we call it eternity. There'll be no day or night. There'll be no time kept. Well, look at these phrases. Verse 16, they shall hunger no more, neither sh uh, thirst anymore, neither shall the sun light on them, nor any heat. Uh, see, we think of the sun as a beautiful thing and, and heat, but to, to uh, a Jewish thinking uh, in a very arid part of the world, uh, John was a Jew himself, and Jesus came to Israel. That was very hot. The sun often was a dangerous thing. Uh, sunburn and sun skin diseases and so on. Uh, the fact that the sun won't light on them is, is a good thing, nor any heat. They won't constantly be dealing with all the, the heat of the sun. Jesus will be a comfort to them. And then we see who's going to be in the midst. Remember who should dwell among them? Here it is. For the Lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them, and shall lead them. I like that. That rhymes and it, it's a good rhyme. He's going to take care of them and he's going to watch over them. Like a shepherd, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd and the good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep, right? In the Old Testament, the picture of Jesus is the great shepherd. It's in Ezekiel 34. I won't take time to go back there, but it's some beautiful verses about Christ coming to be the great shepherd and and he's, he, it isn't as great, capital L. He's called the lamb. Well, the lamb's going to lead his sheep. He's, he's both. He's the great shepherd, but he's the lamb that died for the sins of the world too. He's all these pictures all in one. He leads them into everlasting life. And look at 
to living fountains of waters. Wow, this is picking up so much symbolic terminology from earlier in the Bible. He's told the woman, woman at the well uh, that I'll give you living waters. Remember, she didn't understand what he meant there in John 4, but this is the picture. When you come to Christ, he gives you the water of life. It satisfies your soul, not just your physical thirst. It's eternal satisfaction. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. That's a direct quote right out of chapter 21, verse 4. That's exactly what it'll say then. And so this passage at the end of chapter 7 is like John saying, hey, it's going to happen and Christ is going to come and rule over his people and God's going to have an eternal state for all of his people to enjoy. So this uh, description is not just for the multitude described up in verse 9. It's for all of us that are saved. What a great future we have ahead of us. Well, let's jump into chapter 8. We have just a few minutes, so we like to kind of stay with a pattern. And so let's just get a little bit more covered here. Now, chapter 8 is going to give us that seventh seal. But it's going to be unique in that it's not going to be a judgment in itself. It's kind of going to be an opening to seven more judgments. So let me read the text and spend just a few of our last minutes on this. Chapter 8, verse 1. And when he had opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven about the space of a half an hour. And I saw the seven angels which stood before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. And another angel came and stood at the altar, having a golden censer. And there was given unto him much incense, that he should offer it with the prayers of all saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense which came up with the prayers of the saints ascended up before God out of the angel's hand. And the angel took the censer and filled it with fire of the altar and cast it into the earth. And there were voices and thunderings and lightnings and an earthquake. Well, here we're introduced now to the seventh seal, which, as I said, becomes not a judgment in itself, but an opening up of seven even more terrifying judgments. I am of the opinion that each of these sets of seven judgments seems to get worse. I mean, the seven or the six seals we saw were horrific, terrifying, but now they even get worse and more specific. And, and then we'll see the final seven vile or bold judgments will be the same. Well, notice how the chapter starts. It, it's like a, a pause, you know, a great pause up at heaven. And when he opened the seventh seal, well, you think, okay, what's it going to be? Well, there's a pause. There was silence in heaven about the space of a half an hour. Half an hour. That's interesting. I mean, we think of a half an hour. I never think of heaven keeping time like we keep time on earth, but they must hear. In this period of time, time is really important. During the tribulation period, things are really specific. Seven years, broken up into two, three and a half year periods. We've got even hours being kept here. Half an hour. So for a half hour, nothing happens. And I think it's a preparation time. Uh, well, nothing happens in the text. We think that probably during that half hour, they're preparing these seven angels, which are going to blow the seven trumpets, because that's what it goes right into. And I saw the seven angels, which stood before God, and they're given seven trumpets. Well, each of these angels that blows a trumpet is going to introduce one of these seven judgments that we'll see uh, as the ch as chapter 8 continues. But then he says, I saw another angel, and uh, he came and stood at the altar. Now, this is interesting, and we've already dealt with this, so I won't go into a lot of detail, but 
there seems to be a replica of the Old Testament tabernacle up in heaven. It's the genuine article. It's the, it's the real tabernacle in heaven, the real temple in heaven. And it says he takes off of the altar. So there must be a brazen altar, the real brazen altar that Moses was only given the uh, directions to build a replica of it. And there was given on him much incense. Well, there's incense in the in the tabernacle and in the temple, later built by Solomon, rebuilt by Zerubbabel and, and the post-exilic uh, Jewish people. So we know this is all pictured in the Old Testament. And we've already seen back in chapter 5, uh, remember the, the chapter 5, verse 8, spoke of the prayers of the saints and these vials full of odors or great fragrance or incense. Here it is again. And we see the prayers of the saints pictured as this beautiful incense going up to please God. Oh, our prayer life is so important. God loves his people to pray. He meets with us in a special way in prayer. Every great Christian of all of history, every great person of God, man or woman, through our Old Testament, New Testament, to the very end of time, is always going to be emphasized as a prayer person. People that pray. People that spend time communicating with God. God loves his saints to pray. And here it says the smoke of the incense. This is a good smoke. This is a beautiful fragrance. The incense. What a beautiful smell. It pleases God. Which came with the prayers of the saints. Ascended up before God. Out of the hand of the angels, or out of the angel's hand. Wow. It's like he's taking this incense, which is a picture of the prayers of the saints, and he's offering it to God, and the scent goes to God's throne right there. Because this censer is right before the throne. So it won't be hard for God to smell it. It says the old golden altar, which was before the throne. Oh, by the way, I uh, let me, I misspoke there a moment ago. We're not talking about the uh, brazen altar, pardon me. This is the golden altar that's before the ark, which is in the last room of the tabernacle or the temple. Let me correct that. Remember, there's two altars. There's the brazen altar where they sacrificed animals outside and poured their blood and all that. But this is the golden altar that was in the temple itself or the tabernacle in that first room. And it was in the middle and right past it was the veil that led into the Ark of the Covenant, the most holy place where God dwelt. And that's the picture here. He's on his throne. He's very close to this altar. And this smell of the, of the incense of the prayers of the saints comes up. Well, the last verse we'll cover, verse 5. Um, but notice this goes from the beauty and serenity of the prayers of the saints to the horror and wrath of God in this censer that's filled. It says, and the angel took the censer. Now, they would take these censers. They were like a uh, little carrying, kind of like, kind of like a little container, a metal container with a chain on it that you'd carry. And it would carry live coals from off the brazen altar into keep lit the, the golden altar. There's a connection there. I don't have time to get into all of it here, but uh, that's what he's saying. And the angel took the censer and he filled it with fire of the altar. Notice what he does. Instead of it now becoming a beautiful smell in God's nostrils and God, the fragrance to God, now it's going to be thrown out of the censer as an act of wrath. It's a it's a just an abrupt thing. He just takes the censer and the altar, or the uh, the the coals, if you will, that are in that censer, and throws them out to the earth. And it says he casts into the earth. And look, look what happens. This is wrath, voices and thunderings and lightnings and an earthquake. Well, this is the preparation. This is kind of the the uh, 
getting everyone ready for what these seven trumpets are going to be. Well, we'll stop there. Lord willing, we'll pick up next time on chapter 8 and verse 6 and start to study these seven trumpets. Thank you for listening. And remember, conviction for truth and compassion for people.